You were the Word at the beginning, one with God, the Lord Most High. In hidden glory in creation, now revealed in You, our Christ. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a beautiful name it is, nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. You didn't want. didn't want heaven without us so jesus you brought heaven down my sin was great your love was greater what could separate us now what a wonderful name it is what a wonderful the name of Jesus Christ, my What a wonderful name it is. Nothing compares to this. What a wonderful name it is. The name of Jesus. What a wonderful name it is. The name of Oh, death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring. The praise of your glory. For you are raised to life again. And you have no rival. No, you have no equal now and forever, God, you reign. And yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory, yours is the name above all names. What a powerful name it is, what a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a powerful name it is, and nothing can stand against. What a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus. And you have no rival, though you have no equal, now and forever, God, you Yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory, yours is the name above all names. What a powerful name it is, what a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a powerful name it is. And nothing can stand against what a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus. What a powerful name, what a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus. What a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus. Our scripture today comes from Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. Church of God, the Word of God says this. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith, if 
if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed. In hope, he believed against all hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he has been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith. We can, he considered his body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake only, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Lord, we give you praise right now as our Savior, our Lord, Jesus Christ, you died for us so that we might live, so that we might have life, so that we might be justified and given your righteousness. Lord, now is a time for our faith to be strengthened. Now is a time for us, Lord, to hold fast, to cling to the God that we believe for salvation. Help us now. Every person listening, Every person right now who maybe is struggling with deep anxiety and uncertainty, being inconvenienced, Lord, by the brokenness of our world, help them now, strengthen their faith, remind them anew what Jesus has done for us so that we might be saved, so that we might be justified. I pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, amen. Welcome, everybody, to uh, our service. Glad you're here. Glad you're worshiping with us. And we want to feed your soul this morning with the truth of God's Word. We've been studying the book of Romans, and we're going to continue that now in Romans 4. And you can go ahead and take your Bible and turn to Romans 4 and follow along with me as I teach. Romans 4, verses 13 through 25. This is a tumultuous time for, for us as a people. And I realized that. And it's a time for us to be strong in our faith. The Apostle Paul says elsewhere, not in the book of Romans, but in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, Be watchful. Be vigilant. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. That's such an important thing for us to remember right now. We need to be vigilant. We need to be watchful. But we also need to be firm in our faith. It's important for our families. It's important for our communities. Be strong. Be vigilant. Stand firm in our faith. And, and let me just clarify that for a second. Standing firm in our faith and being strong, that doesn't mean be obnoxious in this time. It doesn't mean either to prognosticate on what's going to happen next. For most of us, we don't know what's going to happen next. But we're going to trust God, and we're going to be strong in our faith. We're going to be vigilant. And we're going to grow, too, hopefully, in our faith as well. And what I want to do today, based upon that passage that I just read, is unpack for you this grand concept of faith. What is faith? I want us to peek under the hood, if we could, and analyze the mechanics of this thing called faith. I want us to perform, if you will, a living autopsy on this thing called faith. I want us to dissect it, 
like you did a, a frog back in middle school. And I want us to look at the constituent parts that make up our faith. What exactly is faith? Why is Paul so adamant about it in Romans chapter 4? What does he mean by faith? Today's message is entitled, The Anatomy of Faith. And I want to look at four things today. Four things from Romans 4, 13 through 15. I want to look first of all at the foil to faith. I want to look at the foundation of faith, the foe of faith, and the final result of faith. Those four things. And then we're done. Let's start here. Let's talk about the foil to faith. What is the foil to faith? Here it is, church. The law. The law. What is faith's foil? It's the law. Paul says in verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The law is the great foil to faith. And and let me be clear about that. When I say law, I'm not talking about the Decatur Police Department, okay? I'm not talking about the U.S. government. I'm not talking here about the clash, circa 1977. I fought the law and the law won. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking instead about the Mosaic Law. This is what Paul's referring to, the 613 commandments of the Mosaic Law that were given to the Israelites in the Pentateuch, including, by the way, the Law of Circumcision, which we looked at last week. Circumcision doesn't save you. That was part of Paul's argument last week. Obedience to the law doesn't save you. Good deeds don't save you. Works of righteousness don't save you. You can't work enough righteousness to save yourself. You need help. You need somebody else. And I want to clarify, too, as we're talking about this, that doesn't mean that the law is bad. The law is not bad. In fact, there's a sense in which the law does us a favor. It points out that we are sinners and that we need help. It shows us our need for help. I was listening this last week to a message by Tim Keller, uh, a live stream talk by him, and it was titled Peace in Times of Suffering and Uncertainty. And it, was a, it, was a very, it was a very timely talk with what we're dealing with right now. And Keller said something interesting about suffering in that talk. He talked about suffering being this, this good thing, although, I mean, let's face it, none of us like to suffer. None of us want to suffer. None of us enjoy suffering. But in the Christian worldview, suffering does us a favor. It shows us that this world is not our home. It helps us to prioritize the most important things in our lives, even before we reach our deathbed. And, and let me just clarify that. You know, when, you, when you're on your deathbed, nobody says on their deathbed, I wish I spent more time at the office. I wish I spent more time on my hobbies. No, on your deathbed, all of the priorities of your life come together and you start to realize maybe what you should have done or what you're glad you did do. And suffering gives you an advance notice on that. It allows us to prioritize those most important things in our lives. I'll be honest with you, church. I don't like COVID-19. I don't like what it's doing to our world. I don't like how it's killing people. I don't like how it's inconveniencing all the rest of us. I don't like it, but I will tell you this. It's helping us prioritize some stuff. It's helping us be reminded of those things that matter the most and our need for something better than this world full of viruses and other unwanted things. Now, this is not a perfect analogy, but I'll just say God gave us the law to do something similar, to make us rethink our ability to save ourselves. It's a foil to faith. We can't save ourselves. We can't obey the law in our own power, not to God's satisfaction. And in fact, Paul says, chronologically speaking, when we look at Abraham, faith preceded the law. That's important. Look at verse 13 again in your Bibles. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. In other words, why would we need faith if we could just obey the law? 
Why would God even comment on Abraham's faith? Why didn't he just give him the law and tell him to obey it? The, the faith of Abraham, Abraham preceded the law. For the law, verse 15, brings wrath. The law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. As I said earlier, you know, the law is good. It, it points out sin, but the law also brings wrath. If we fail to keep the law, which we will, we'll fail. God has to punish our transgressions, and that's not good for us. Galatians 3, verse 10, there's some great parallels here in the book of Galatians, if you want to look some of these up later. But Galatians 3, 10 says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Cursed. I don't want to be cursed, Pastor Tony. I don't want to be cursed either. I don't want that to be my fate. If you try to find salvation by works, you are cursed, says Paul in Galatians, says Paul in Romans. Let me put it this way. Faith. The law is the foil to faith. Let me give you an example of a foil, and this will be good for some of you younger listeners out there. Who is the great foil in the movie Frozen? Do you know? Have you seen that movie? The foil is the prince, Prince Hans, right? He's the one that you think you want to fall in love with. He's the one that you think you want to marry you, but... That's not going to end well. He's the foil for the real romantic hero in that movie. Am I right? Are you with me? Those of you who have young kids, you get this. Those of you who don't, maybe you need to watch the movie later and try to understand that illustration. Wait until we're done with this message before you go watch that movie. Write this down as number two in your notes. There's the foil of faith, the foil to faith which is the law, what's the foundation of faith? Say, okay, Pastor Tony, I shouldn't put my hope in the law and obedience to the law. That's the foil. What do I put my faith in? What is the foundation of faith? Here it is, God's promises. God's promises. That's what we're putting our hope in. That's what we're putting our faith in. Paul says this in verse 16. He says, that is why it, the promise to Abraham, the inheritance, that's why this depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. You didn't earn it. It's God's favor and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only the adherents of the law, but also to the one who share, who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Remember last week I told you that Abraham is the father of all who believe, not just the Jews, but us Gentiles as well. Abraham was a believing Gentile for 13 years before he was circumcised and became a Jew officially. He's our father, too. If you want to conclude this message by singing Father Abraham with your kids, I think that's good. You should do that. Paul says this, verse 17, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Now, listen, this is really important. You guys got to get this. At the end of verse 17, in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Who did Abraham believe in? Where did he put his faith? He put it in God. He put it in God's promises. Abraham didn't believe in himself. He didn't believe in Santa Claus. He, he didn't believe that he was going to play in the NBA someday, even though he's five foot tall and doesn't have eye-hand coordination. That is not the faith that we're talking about here. He didn't put his faith in any of those faulty things. He put his faith in God. The God who, verse 17, gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things do, that do not exist. The God who creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. The God who gives life to your dead body. The, Jesus raised people from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead himself. Jesus can raise your dead body someday when you go home to glory. Jesus can raise your dead soul too, even now. You can move from death to life in Christ. What do we symbolize as a church when we baptize people? We symbolize death to self and new life in Christ Jesus. Jesus does that. Listen, as we dissect this thing called faith as we're dissecting it now 
We need to be clear about this. Faith is not just something crazy you believe and and sanction it by saying, I believe. I believe this, so it's going to happen. That That is Peter Pan. I believe I can fly, so now I can fly. That is not what we're talking about here. That's not Christian belief at all. A few weeks ago, I preached a message, and I referenced what you might call the leprechaun argument. Let me get back to that now and talk about that for a second. Some people treat Christian faith like belief in Santa Claus. If we believe it enough, if we believe it enough, it'll happen. We can bring it into existence by our faith. That is not Christian faith. And people, sh- people should not think of Christian faith like that. That's Peter Pan faith. That's, that's, that's leprechaun. If I believe I'm a leprechaun, I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. I really, really believe it. Arrgh, it's going to happen. That is not how faith works. I don't care how sincere you are. It doesn't matter about your sincerity. You have nowhere in God's word, you have no truth to base that on, that you are a leprechaun. God never said in his word, you are a leprechaun, believe it. But God has given us promises. God has given us truth. And we, he has called us to believe that. That's what Abraham believed, God's word, God's promise. Now, that's leprechaun faith. Let's talk about something else. There, there's something else. You might, I'm, I'm going to call this carpet faith. Let's say that I am standing on carpet right now, which I am. And I say, well, I believe I stand on carpet. I believe it, and, and you can't tell me otherwise. Is that what we mean by Christian faith? No, 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 no. I, I can see the carpet. I can, I can touch the carpet. There's no faith in that at all. It's there. I see it. I, I mean, it's as clear as day. This is a pulpit. This is a TV screen. Nothing is required to believe that. Even with viruses, we can see them. You don't, you don't have to believe viruses exist, even though you can't see them. You can look in a microscope and find them. That's not faith. That's science. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Let's clarify here. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So we need to put these things together here. We need to understand that it's, it's not leprechaun faith. It's not carpet faith. It's, it's a combination of truth and belief. And here's how, here's how R. Kent Hughes puts these together. You can read this on the screen right here. He says, some people are under the impression that when a person has faith, he inwardly agrees to ignore the facts. Just ignore the facts. They see faith and facts as mutually exclusive. Faith without reason is fideism. It's fideism. Reason without faith is rationalism. We're not talking about fideism. We're not talking about rationalism. In practice, there must be no reduction of faith to reason. Likewise, there must be no reduction of reason to faith. Biblical faith is a composite of the two. Abraham, let me say it this way. Abraham didn't take just an unreasonable leap into the dark. It's not Indiana Jones. Just take some crazy leap into the darkness. It's built upon the truth of God's word. That's what Paul is saying here. It's faith in God's promises. It's faith on the solid rock of what God says. Here's how the New Testament scholar Doug Moo says it in his Romans commentary. This is super helpful. He says that Abraham's faith was not a leap into the dark. It's not baseless and irrational decision making. Instead, it's a leap from the evidence of one's senses into the security of God's word and promise. That's faith. That's what Abraham had, and that's what Paul is calling us to. Write this down as number three in your notes. Paul also talks about the great foe to faith. Let's continue our dissection here. What's the great foe to faith? Here's the foe. It's doubt. It's doubt. And by the way, when I say doubt, I'm not talking about doubting the absurd here. If you doubt that you're a leprechaun right now, that's a good doubt. You should you should doubt that. And that is not the foe to faith. That's actually the friend of faith. When I say doubt, I'm speaking about a certain kind of doubt. 
Doubting God's word. Doubting God's promises. That is the great foe to faith. Look at verse 18 with me. Paul, he's speaking of Abraham here. He says, in hope, he believed against hope, which is fascinating. In hope, he believed against, what does that mean? I think the idea here is that Abraham, in God-believing hope, defied his own human hope. That's what he's saying here. In God-defying hope. He had hope against human hope. I mean, what was this human hope in his 90s that he would have a child? He didn't have any hope of that at all. You might as well hope that you win the lottery. That's the human hope that he has. But he had a God-believing hope that trumped his human hope. That's what we're talking about here. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. Why? Why did he believe that? Because God promised it. Because God said it would happen. Because, because he was told by God. Look, in your ver- look at your Bibles at verse 18. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. A nation as numerous as the stars of the sky. That's what God told him. Abraham believed it. And that faith was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 19. He did not weaken in faith. When he considered his own body which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old. That's Paul's not-so-polite way of saying that Abraham's sexual instruments weren't working anymore. They were dead. And he had no way to enact this promise on his own. He was a 100 years old. And it wasn't just that God had to raise that sexual organ of Abraham's back from the dead Not just Abraham, look at the end of verse 19. Or when Abraham considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. God had to raise Sarah's reproductive system back from the dead too in order to enact this promise, in order to make this happen. Her womb by age 90 was like a sarcophagus. It was dead. It was D-E-A-D, dead. The Greek word used here for barrenness is this word necrosis. Necrosis. People use that in the medical community to talk about dead tissue. Uh, The word necromancy is derived from this word, if you've heard that word before. The necromancer from Lord of the Rings, if you're familiar with that. Sauron, before he was Sauron, he was the necromancer. That's a a sorcerer who communicates with the dead. Paul says Sarah's Sarah's womb was necrosis. It was dead. It was D-E-A-D, dead. And it it wasn't just that she was past childbearing age. I mean, that'd be a thing on its own. But beyond that, she had never had a child before. So he had to raise something from the dead that had never given birth to anything before at all. You might say, wow, God is really... Stacking the deck against, against Abraham here. That's, that's exactly right. So why in the world would Abraham believe this? Why would he believe that Sarah would have a baby? I'll tell you why he should believe it. I'll tell you why he did believe it. It's because God said it. It's because God promised it. That was the foundation of his faith. Robert Mounds calls that faith Our faith, Abraham's faith, the total surrender to the ability and willingness of God to carry out his promises. That's our faith. Don't ask me to put my faith in something that God hasn't said. Don't ask me to believe something crazy that is not consistent with God's promises. I won't believe that. I have faith that God can do anything, but I don't have faith in something that God hasn't promised. Look at verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Now, for those of you who know the story of Abraham, even as you read that, you you think to yourself, as I've thought throughout the week, studying this passage, hmm, Abraham, it sure seemed like he wavered at different times. If you're familiar with the story of Abraham, you know, Abraham had his, you know, ups and downs. And you might say, well, what about that time, Pastor Tony, when Abraham went to Egypt? 
and he told the Egyptians that Sarah was his sister. And that wasn't an isolated incident. That actually happened several chapters later before Abimelech. What about the time also, Pastor Tony, when Abraham tried to enact God's promises on his own with Hagar, the concubine? Wasn't that wavering in faith? What about the time that, that Abraham actually laughed at God when God said he was going to have a child? He laughed. God's got a sense of humor. He thought it was funny, too. He said, okay, you want to laugh at me? The joke's on you. We're going to name the boy Laughter, Yitzhak. We're going to name him He Laughs. That's what God did. Wasn't that a time as Abraham laughed that he wavered in faith? I get it. If you're thinking that right now, I get it. And let me just answer that as best I can. I think the best best answer to that question is to see Abraham's conduct as wavering, but his faith in God never did. Abraham's conduct wavered, but his faith in God never did. Tom Schreiner says it this way. Abraham persevered. He persisted in faith as the basic pattern of his life. Yes, he made mistakes. Yes, he fell down, but he always got up in faith. He always got up in faith. I was listening to a message this last week by J.D. Greer, pastor in North Carolina. And Greer was talking about in that message how as a young person he constantly struggled with assurance of salvation. Is he saved? Has he lost his salvation? Has he done enough? Has he prayed the right thing? And it was a really powerful message hearing, hearing him talk about Romans 4 and how the Lord used this great chapter of the Bible to, to help him out of that place of insecurity. And, you know, Greer, he talks about how Abraham, every time he fell down, every time he made a mistake with Hagar, with Abimelech, he got back up in faith. He fell down and he got back up in faith. And he fell down and he got back up in faith. And actually Greer quotes Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16, which says this, the righteous falls seven times and rises Again, the righteous falls seven times and rises again. That's Abraham. Fell down, rises up. Fell down, rises up. Fell down, rises up in faith. And I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly encouraging from God's word that Paul, looking back, inspired by the Holy Spirit, right now as he's writing in Romans, he looks back at Abraham. And where you and I might see wavering, God looks at the sum total of his life and he says, that is a man of faith. That encourages me because I, I got my own moments like this. And I want the sum total of my life to be my faith. Is in, yes, I messed up. Yes, I fell down. Yes, I made a mistakes. But my faith in the Lord never faltered. It never wavered. God was gracious to me. Paul says, verse 20, Reiterating this concept, concept says no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Abraham didn't boast in himself. We talked about this already, haven't we? Abraham would boast in the Lord. Abraham would give glory to the Lord. That is why Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 22, he gave glory to God. Why? He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. What is faith, Pastor Tony? You might be asking. What is it? You've done the autopsy now. You've dissected it. Distill it for me down to its most essential element. How do you define this concept of faith? Here it is. Church, are you listening? Look at verse 21. I can't think of a better definition for faith other than maybe what I said in Hebrews 11, verse 1. What does verse 21 say? Fully convinced, Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's faith. That's Christian faith. We are fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. 
Don't be fully convinced about something he hasn't promised. That's not faith. That's leprechaun faith. Don't be fully convinced about something you can see with your eyes and it's right here and it doesn't require faith. That's carpet faith. We are fully convinced in the thing that God has promised. Be fully convinced in those things that God has promised. That is faith. That is what Abraham had. And that is what God is calling us to demonstrate in our lives. And so that you might say, okay, Pastor, okay, 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 great. What exactly does God want me to believe then? What exactly is the promise of God that I should put my faith in? Something that I can't see with my eyes. Something that God has told me. Something that will credit me righteousness like Abraham was credited righteousness. If you're asking that question right now, that's a good question. If you're 90 years old right now asking that question, that's a good question. If you're 50 years old, if you're 60 years old, if you're five years old asking that question, that's a good question. What does the Lord want us to put his, our faith in in order to be saved? I'll tell you this much. Don't put your faith, if you are 90, 90 years old out there, don't put your faith in what God told Abraham that you're going to have a child in your 90s and go out to Walmart and buy a baby crib. That is not what God has promised you. So what has he promised you? What should we believe? Paul tells us. He tells us. Look at verse 23. It's like Paul's developing the story of Abraham, 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 and all of a sudden, he turns the camera away from Abraham and he points it right at you. He looks right at you and he says, this is about you. He says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake only. Interesting. Who were these words written for? Verse 24. But for our sake also. They were written. It will be counted to us who believe in him, the God of Abraham. What? What do we believe? Here it is. Who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's what we believe. That's the basis of our justification. Not faith that God will give us an offspring in our 90s like Abraham, but the God, faith in the God who told Abraham, you will have a child in your 90s and made it happen, is the same God who told us, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be saved, you will be justified, it will be counted to you as righteousness. Put our faith in the one who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus Christ received what we deserved on the cross. Our sins were placed on him, imputed to him on that cross so that his righteousness could be credited to us. He got the payment. He got the punishment that we deserve. We get his reward. It's counted to us. It's counted to us as righteousness. And that's justification. Write this down as number four in your notes. Final point. Here's the final result of faith. Justification. Justification. That's the final result of faith. Real faith. Not leprechaun faith, not carpet faith. Not belief in yourself. Please don't believe in yourself. There's better things in this world to believe than that. I'm not talking about belief in the human spirit. To be quite honest, I don't believe in the human spirit, in the goodness of the human spirit. Not fully. Put your faith in this instead. Real faith. Faith in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Faith in that work, that finished work on the cross that will save us from our sins. 
That's justification. That's salvation. That's what takes our sins away. Let me just make a quick comment here about COVID-19. Okay, everybody listen up. I didn't want to preach a whole message on COVID-19, but I think it would be wrong of me to not at least address that subject matter. How does COVID-19 meet Romans 4? Here's how it meets. If you really get this, if you really understand what Jesus has done for you and what your faith in him means for your eternity, for your salvation, for your justification, there is nothing ultimately to fear in this world. Viruses, war, pestilence, plague. You can have assurance that even in death, you will be with the Lord forever, for eternity. And that trumps all fears, all anxieties, all concerns, all uncertainty in this world. If you really get that, if you have real faith, the faith that Paul's talking about here in Romans chapter 4. But you need to know, you need to know that this is the only way that God has made for our sins to be forgiven. It's the only way. And it's the only true hope that we have for life after death. I was listening to two different messages this last week, just in preparation for this. And um, it was amazing to me as I listened to these two messages. One of these messages was from a pastor in New York City who's trying to respond to the, the crisis that we're dealing with right now. Another message I listened to was a person, a pastor from Denton, Texas. Okay, so this is, you couldn't imagine two more radically different people or different sermons, different styles. And yet I, I marveled as I was listening to these messages in um, close succession how they essentially said the same thing, and it was this. He said that we live in a world right now in a time when people ha are more sanguine about living forever and not being afraid of death than, than ever in history. Throughout human history, everybody has known that they're just one plague away from death. They're just one war time act away from death. They're just one pestilence away from death. And, and it's really a marvel in our day that somebody like me, I'm 41 years old. In, in the past, I mean, it was almost a rarity to live that long and to have that full of life, never going off to war, never dealing with pestilence. You know, people died early. People died young. People died with threats of death all around them. Shakespeare died at age 52. Henry VIII died at age 55. Alexander the Great died at age 32. John Calvin died at age 54. And none of those men died in war. If you factor wartime deaths into the average age of death for most humans throughout human history, it's way earlier than we experience today. We're the first generation of people that think we're going to live forever, feel like we're going to live forever, and then all of a sudden we get hit with a killer, with a virus, and it stops life. And we think about death. I'll be honest, even from my perspective, I'm 41. I haven't been to war. There's been wars in my lifetime, but I, I haven't fought in those wars. I've never seen pestilence, not really. I've never dealt with a plague or a virus like what we're dealing with now. We're the first civilization of people who thinks that we're going to live forever and maybe plan to live forever. And now into our false confidence in the wrong things, all of a sudden we have a coronavirus. And I think it's important for us as Christians to remember two things right now. First of all, we are not as strong and untouchable as we think we are even in our modern world. In fact, our modern world has made us more vulnerable to this than we would be otherwise. And then secondly, 
It's a good reminder. It's good to be reminded right now that this world is not our home. We love it. It's good to us sometimes. But it's not our home. It's infected. It's broken. And Jesus Christ came into this broken world to give strength to the weak. He came to give salvation to the lost. He came to give hope to the hopeless. He came to give a future to the futureless. Our faith in Jesus makes that possible. That's, and that's the hope that we cling to. When the brokenness of this world shows its fangs. That's our hope. And if you don't have that hope in Christ, I don't know where you are right now watching this. You may be a young person who attends Harvest Decatur. You might be an older person that attends Harvest Decatur. You might not attend Harvest Decatur, wherever you are right now. If you don't have this hope that takes you beyond death in this world to new hope, to new life in Jesus Christ, you can have that hope. You can have it. You can be justified by faith. If you do have that hope, if you do have that hope in Christ, Now's the time to cling to it. Now's the time to hold on to it. Now's the time to stand fast and stand firm in your faith and show the world that this God that you serve is greater than anything that would impact our world. And this world is not our home. And God is preparing for us something better. The final result of our faith is justification. It's salvation. It's the promise of eternity with the Lord after our life in this world inevitably comes to an end and nothing can take that away from us. Nothing can take that away from us. Let me close with this. The passage that we looked at today It's a passage about an Old Testament figure named Abraham who was 99 years old when he was circumcised and promised a child. I want to close this morning by talking about another 99-year-old person, the great evangelist, famous evangelist, the late Billy Graham, who was 99 years old when he died. And when Billy Graham was entering into death, he knew it was near. He gave what would be his final answer to one of life's great questions. And this is on the screen. You can read it as I read it to you. I want you to hear what Billy Graham said. And the question that he was asked was this, Mr. Graham, how would you like to be remembered? How would you like to be remembered, Mr. Graham? And Billy Graham said this, He said, I hope I will be remembered as someone who is faithful. Faithful to God, faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and faithful to the calling God gave me, not only as an evangelist, but as a husband, a father, a friend. I'm sure I've failed in many ways, but I take comfort in Christ's promise of forgiveness. And I take comfort also in God's ability to, to take even our most imperfect efforts and use them for His glory. By the time you read this, I will be in heaven. And as I write this, I'm looking forward with great anticipation to the day when I will be in God's presence forever. I'm convinced that heaven is far more glorious than anything we could possibly imagine right now. And I look forward not only to its wonder and its peace, but also to the joy of being reunited reunited with those who have gone there before me, especially my dear wife, Ruth. But then Graham says this, and I want to leave you with this. He says, but I won't be in heaven because I've preached to large crowds or because I've tried to live a good life. I'll be in heaven for one reason. Many years ago, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross to make our forgiveness possible and rose again from the dead to give us eternal life. Do you know you will go to heaven when you die?
You can. You can. By committing your life to Jesus Christ today, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Put your trust in Christ today. Lord, I want to thank you for your salvation. The testimony, Lord, that I just read from Billy Graham, not unlike my own. Lord, and I pray for the people right now watching this video, singing our songs, hearing these hearing this message, these words of yours, Lord. Lord, comfort them. Assure them. Strengthen the hope that they have in you. Remind them, Lord, of the future that they have with you. And Lord, if there's anybody now listening who hasn't trusted Christ, Lord, do that work now. Lead them to salvation. Help them to know the simplicity of that, that statement that Billy Graham just made, that we're not saved by our works, by anything we do, but we're saved by putting our trust in you, putting our faith in you. Confirm that in our hearts, Lord. Strengthen us, Lord, as fear tries to get the best of us in this day. We love you, Lord. Pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.